Uh, good morning to everyone. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Our text is actually in Mark 9, verses 14 through 29. But before we get there, I want to take you on a brief journey. Beginning in Mark chapter 8, uh, verse 31. And here the Lord Jesus begins to reveal to his disciples that he is going to die. And so we read in Mark eight thirty-one, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So that verse, that statement marks a dramatic shift in the book. In Mark's gospel account, to this point, Mark has been chiefly concerned with showing, demonstrating, revealing who Jesus is. But from here, the emphasis shifts from who Jesus is to why Jesus has come. And Christ himself states it explicitly, plainly. He must suffer. He must be killed. And after three days, he must rise again. Now turn over to chapter 9, verse 30. They went on from there. That's a reference to Jesus and the disciples. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will arise. So there he states it explicitly for the second time, that he is going to suffer He is going to die, and he is going to rise again. Now over to chapter 10. There's a third explicit declaration of his impending death, found in verse 32. And they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid, and taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up. To Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. So he states it clearly in chapter 8. He states it clearly in chapter 9. He states it clearly in chapter 10. Now look at chapter 11, the very first verse. Now when they drew near to... Jerusalem. He's there. That verse marks the beginning of what we call Passion Week. And chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and most of 16 are crammed into seven days. He is in Jerusalem. And he is in Jerusalem to suffer. He is in Jerusalem to die. He is in Jerusalem to rise again. And so did you note the shift? First half of the book, Tremendous emphasis on who Jesus is. Second half of the book, tremendous emphasis on what Jesus does. His suffering, his death, his resurrection. Now what we have in our text, back to chapter 9, I know I'm jumping around a little bit, but no more. We're in our text now, chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. What we have is the start of a subsection. Chapter 9, verse 14. And it goes all the way through to the end of chapter 10. So really a chapter and a half, beginning in chapter 9, verse 14, right to the end of chapter 10. 
And in this subsection, right, we, we, we know who Jesus is, we know what Jesus does. But in this little subsection, these verses, there's a tremendous emphasis, yes, those two declarations as to why Jesus has come, but tremendous emphasis, particular emphasis, on his teaching. His teaching and his training of his disciples. And there are basically eight lessons. Now, if you have your bulletin still, your worship guide, you open that up. Some of you are familiar with the sermon notes. Some of you, this is terra incognita, but you open that up and you will find sermon notes. And you'll find at the top of those sermon notes, do you see where I am? A lesson on faith, all things are possible. Mark 9, 14 through 29. And then I've listed below that title, what? The eight lessons. There's a summation of this subsection beginning in Mark 9, verse 14. It goes all the way through to Mark 10, verse 52, in which the Lord Jesus addresses, teaches eight lessons. There is firstly, this is what we're going to consider today, a lesson on faith. All things are possible. Then there is a lesson on humility, true greatness. A lesson on temptation, radical surgery. A lesson on marriage, one flesh. A lesson on children, a warm embrace. A lesson on wealth, the eye of a needle. A lesson on leadership, a slave of all. And then again, a lesson on faith, recovered sight. So the two lessons on faith, they are bookends. They are brackets. He begins this subsection with a lesson on faith. All things are possible. He ends this subsection with another lesson on faith, recovered sight. And in between, there are these six lessons. You see, I'll let you in on a little secret. The disciples have issues. All of us have issues. Do you have issues? Get in line. We've all got issues. And I suggest to you, actually more, I'll use a stronger term than suggest, I I affirm to you this day that 99% of the issues that we deal with are addressed right here. Uh, You've got issues, whatever's running through your mind when I say that, issues, uh, 99% of them the Lord Jesus addresses head on in these verses. A lesson on faith, humility, temptation, marriage, children, wealth, leadership, and again, faith. So this is our business. This is what we're about for the next eight Sundays, nine Sundays. I don't think we'll drag it out any longer than that. But we begin today with the first. A lesson on faith, all things are possible. And so you found Mark chapter 9. And follow along as I begin reading in verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, stop right there. When they came to the disciples, they, that is a reference to Jesus, uh, Peter, James, and John. Where have they been? Up on a mount. What has happened? Jesus has been transfigured before Peter, James, John, and Elijah and Moses. Transfigured. That means the light of his eternal glory, the veil of his humanity has been drawn back. And the light, the resplendent light of his eternal glory has shone forth. And the disciples, those three disciples have seen it. Moses and Elijah have seen it. And then a cloud, the Shekinah glory, the dwelling glory of God has encompassed the entire mount. And from the center, the midst of that cloud, they have heard an audible voice. This is my beloved son. That is what has just happened. They have what? Descended the mount. They have come to whom? The disciples. The other nine. The nine who were not on the mountaintop. The nine who were somewhere else. And they saw a great crowd around them. 
Still reading in verse 14. And scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can... All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Keep reading to the end of verse 32. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Now, here's the question. What is the point of these verses? Right? That's the question we need to answer. Ask and try to answer. Uh, Yes, what is going on here? Uh, The verses raise a couple of interesting, if not troubling, questions. Uh, But the, the real question we want answered is this. What is the point? Of these verses. Uh, What is the Lord Jesus trying to teach his disciples? And by extension, what is the Spirit of God uh, attempting to teach us? Before I answer the question, let me dispel, uh, remove two common ways in which these verses are misused, if not outright abused. The first is this some people look at these verses as a manual on how to get what they want. That comes out of verse 23. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And so some people will latch on that verse, rip it right out of its context and say, aha, a blank check. Whatever I want, if my faith is strong enough, God will grant it to me. And so that is coupled with the word faith movement. And a lot of people today, uh, in their confusion, believing that uh, faith is basically what? It is the conviction that God can and will do whatever I want. No, it isn't. Faith is the conviction that God will do what he has promised. And yet, sadly, many people today think faith is the, is the conviction that what? The confidence that what? God will do whatever I want. If I simply have enough faith, then God is some sort of force, energy, being, divine being, sure. But something that I can tap into and unleash in order to get what I visualize and what I verbalize, whatever it is my heart desires. That is a misuse. That is an abuse of this text. 
The second abuse of this text that we need to just deal with quickly and just push it aside is this. Some people view these verses as a manual on how to engage demons in spiritual warfare. That is not the principal purpose of this text. Uh, they, will, they will gravitate, for example, to verse 29. He said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And they will say, well, there you have it. Uh, we need to be in prayer. And we need to, be, we need to pray a lot. And uh, lots of us need to pray. And we need to accompany that prayer with fasting. Because here the Lord Jesus has given us a manual as to how to engage demons and to, and to have victory over demons. And I can recall many instances in, in my life when I've come up against and experienced this kind of thinking. One in particular, years, 20 years ago, 22 years ago, I was on a summer team with Operation Mobilization in Europe. And I don't know, 3,000, 4,000 college-age kids congregated somewhere in, in Belgium, Genk, Belgium, I think it was. And then from there, we dispersed all over Europe. And I was part of a team going into Russia. And uh, we took a bus from Belgium to Hungary in order to catch a train. No sooner were we on this bus than a, a woman stood up and began to pray for the angels and demons fighting on top of the bus. I think she'd been reading too many of Frank Peretti's books. And she had this idea that, uh, you know, if we don't pray, and if we don't pray long, and if all of us don't pray, there's a battle up there, and maybe the angel will lose. And so let's pray because we've got this formula given to us how to engage in spiritual conflict, spiritual warfare. That's a misuse of this text. That's not the point. The Lord Jesus is not giving us a manual here. Yes, we believe there are demons. Yes, we believe there are active. Yes, we believe all authority has been given to the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven and on earth. And that we are seated with the Lord Jesus Christ in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And every name that has ever been named. This isn't a manual. It's not a manual on how to get what we want. Nor is it a manual on how to engage demons in spiritual warfare. So what is the purpose of this text? What is the purpose of this incident? Let me summarize it as follows. These verses demonstrate how we are to walk by faith in the midst of the valley when Jesus is hidden from view. I'll repeat it. These verses demonstrate how we are to walk by faith in the midst of the valley when Jesus is hidden from view. We jump up and down and get excited when we hear the year 1517. Why? Because we, uh, we associate it with the, the beginning of the Reformation. It was in that year, October 31st. Uh, you know, uh, Luther nailed his 95 theses to the uh, door of that church, that chapel in Wittenberg, igniting, some say, the Reformation. It's interesting, on the same day, there was an Italian artist, the same year, not the same day, the same year, there was an Italian artist by the name of Raphael Sanzio, you want to know all about him, check with Kendra afterwards. Actually, I don't know if she studied that period of art history. Better not put her on the spot. But uh, Raphael Sanzio, he was commissioned to paint the Transfiguration. And he went at it for three years, died before it was finished, but I think it was a couple of students completed it for him when it was done. You Google it. Raphael Sanzio, I think it's S-A-N-Z-I-O, uh, Transfiguration, and you'll, and you'll find it. It is a wonderful piece of art. A, a tremendous piece of art, not to be compared to that thing that sold, was it yesterday or Friday, for $34 million? Did you hear about that? Well, don't Google that. But you've got <laughs> Raphael Sanzio, the Transfiguration, and, and it's a beautiful, beautiful work of art. And in the top half of this, of this mural, of this oil painting, uh, Raphael has depicted the Lord Jesus on the mount and the Transfiguration. 
And Peter, James, and John are prostrate before the Lord Jesus. And Moses is on one side, and Elijah is on the other side. And the entire scene is bathed in resplendent light. And that's where the eye is drawn. And then you, you think to yourself, well, there's something below it. And you look down. There's a bottom half of the painting. And it isn't bathed in resplendent light. It is a dark, dark shadow. And you look closely, and what do you discern? Faces. Who? The nine disciples. And what are they trying to do? They are trying, futility, but they are trying to cast this demon out of this man's young son. And it is just darkness, this shadow. And here he depicts the disciples, and you, and you gaze upon the, the looks upon their faces in this, in this period of confusion and fear and bewilderment. Some of them are arguing. Some of them just look, are in a state of despondency and despair, looking off nowhere. And they all have this look of futility. So you have this top half of this beautiful painting, the transfiguration, the mountaintop, bathed in light. And then the bottom half of this painting, the valley below, and this all-pervasive shadow. What was Raphael Sanzio trying to depict? Simply this, friends. The top of the mountain experiences and the bottom of the valley experiences, they coexist. That is the Christian journey. There are times, sadly few and far between, when we find ourselves where? On the mountaintop. And you know it and I know it. It is easy to believe on the mountaintop. The perspective is clear. The light is beautiful and we believe. But here is the reality. That more often than not as believers we find ourselves where? In the valley. Where it is not so easy to live by Faith. Why? Because Jesus is hidden from view. You see, we cannot understand this text that we've read in Mark 9. We cannot divorce it and separate it from the transfiguration. They are to be viewed and understood and considered together. That here you have the three disciples up on the mount, bathed in resplendent light. And while those disciples are basking in something unlike anything they have ever seen. John later, as he remembers that incident, will declare, we have seen his glory. Well, while they're enjoying that, while they're basking in the transfiguration, where are the other nine? They're in the valley. They're in the darkness. And Jesus is hidden from view. And so the intent, the intent of this text, let me repeat it, is to demonstrate how we are to walk by faith in the midst of the valley when Jesus is hidden from view. Now, many of us, if not most of us right now, are in a valley. I'm not, we're not, we're not particularly interested in the nature of the valley. We are simply acknowledging and affirming that the valleys are real and that we find ourselves there more often than we would like. And we find that the mountain peak, the mountaintop experiences, well, there's such a distance between them. And many of us right now at this moment, we find ourselves 
in a valley. It is dark. And in this valley, we have lost sight, or or let me say it is easy to lose sight of the Lord Jesus. And when we lose sight of the Lord Jesus, what happens to our faith? It begins to waver. So whatever the cause of the valley, whatever the nature of the valley, the text speaks to it. The lessons speak to it. And as we read these verses, we discover that four key truths, four lessons emerge from the written page, God's holy word, teaching us how we are to walk by faith in the midst of the valley when Jesus is hidden from view. So what I'm going to do is work through these four lessons and explain briefly each how it relates to this this specific, this particular incident uh, concerning these nine disciples. And then we're going to enlarge it and be quite expansive in our thinking. And I'm I'm going to do something different, and I I hope this goes over well. I'm really going to focus on lists today. And so under each of these four points, I've put together a list. And um, I, I was wrestling, how, do, how best do I communicate this? So I've put each list on a PowerPoint, on a slide. And Lauren at the back is going to bring up that slide as we work through each of these points. As a matter of fact, Lauren, you can bring up the first one now. As we work through these four lessons, these four truths, is it there? As I look down, yes, it is. There it is. As we work through these four lessons, uh, these four truths as to how we are to walk by faith in the midst of a valley when Jesus is hidden from view. Here is lesson number one that comes out of the text. Christian, accept the valleys. Not E-X-C-E-P-T, A-C-C-E-P-T. Accept the valleys. Accept them. And so Jesus is on the mount. We have that in the first 13 verses of chapter 9. He comes down from the mount with Peter, James, and John, these three. They encounter, they come to the other disciples, and there are actually three groups conversing, arguing, to be blunt. You have the disciples, you have the crowds, and you have the scribes. What are they arguing over? And so Jesus asks them, what are you arguing about? Everyone falls silent, except for one man. And he steps forward and he explains that uh, he has a son, a young son, who has been uh, severely oppressed by a demon. And the demon is abusing him. The demon is afflicting him. This demon is seeking to destroy him. And he, he brought his son to these nine disciples. And his request was very simple. Do something for him. Can you do something for him? Cast this demon out of him. What they were unable to do? Anything. Now note the contrast in the texts. We move from the first 13 verses into these verses. We move from the mountain to the valley. We move from glory to suffering. We move from light to darkness. We move from clarity to confusion. We move from peace to fear. We move from liberty to oppression. We move from beauty to ugliness. We move from purity to squalor. There we were on the mountaintop, the resplendent glory of the Lord Jesus shining through. And then suddenly we are wrenched where? Into this valley. And what comes into view? The effects of the fall. 
And the gravity of the effects as seen in this young boy who is oppressed by demonic powers, it is a stark contrast. We are no longer on the mountain. Where are we? We are in the valley. It is a stark reminder, friends, of the fact that we live in a fallen world. We, lived in a, we live in a world marred and scarred by sin. And we live in a world, even as Christians, that is full, chock full of valleys. The danger... Now, understand this. Wrestle with it, perhaps. Please understand this. The danger isn't the valleys in and of themselves. Do you know what the danger is? The danger is this. There are pitfalls in the valley. And what I have put on the screen behind us are basically five pitfalls that when we accept the valleys, we embrace them, And we understand we live in a fallen world. We live in a world rampant, weighed down under the consequences and the effects of sin. We accept that there are valleys. It isn't the valleys in themselves which pose a danger or a threat. It is the fact that if we are not careful to navigate our way through the valley, there are five potentially dangerous, hazardous pitfalls. They're right there. First is this, pitfall number one, misunderstanding the nature of discipleship. Misunderstanding the nature of discipleship. What do I mean? I simply mean this. We struggle, all of us, some more than others, but we all struggle with it to some point, with with being what uh, J.I. Packer calls restless experimentalists. What does he mean by that? We're always looking for the next high. The next emotional high. We're always looking for something that is novel. We're always looking for what we perceive to be mountaintop experiences. And we do that, the extent to which we do that can be hazardous to our spiritual well-being because it prevents us from doing what? Accepting the true nature of Christian discipleship. We saw it a few Sundays ago. The Lord Jesus, after making it clear who he is, the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Lord Jesus, who after explaining why he has come to suffer, to die, to rise again, he then extends that wonderful invitation which echoes down through the corridors of time to present. That wonderful invitation in which he articulates the true essence of Christian discipleship. And what is it? Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. He is inviting us to do what? Take his hand and walk with him through the valley. As a matter of fact, he is promising us, he is guaranteeing it, that to follow him will involve self-denial. That to follow him will mean taking up our cross, whereby we value him, we value the gospel to such a degree that we are prepared and willing to suffer anything for it. That is the call. And yet it is a call, it is an invitation that is, a, that is most reasonable. It is an invitation that makes perfect sense in the light of who he is and what he has done. But that is the true nature 
of Christian discipleship. It involves taking the hand of the Lord Jesus and walking in the midst of the valley. Second pitfall is this, neglecting to prepare for suffering. Neglecting to prepare for suffering. Um, Winter isn't that big of a deal down here. Where I come from, it's a big deal. So come October, people, well, unless they have all radials on their car, what do they do? They take off the tires and they put on winter tires. They're preparing for what? Winter. They check the furnace, make sure it's working. If it isn't, they service it. They begin to collect fuel, oil, gas, wood, whatever they're going to need to make it through the winter. They make sure they've still got that shovel, that it's not broken. They buy salt, they buy sand because they're going to need it. And and, and winter, it might come in gently. You may wake up some early November morning and there's just a little bit of wet snow on the ground or it can come in with with a terrible blizzard of 10, 15 inches of snow. However it comes, we know what? It's coming. So too in the Christian life, friends, suffering is coming. I guarantee it. Suffering is the pathway to glory. Jesus taught us that. Jesus exemplified that. Glory extended, offered to him, but it was a glory through the shadow of the cross. We need to prepare for that suffering in times of what? On those mountaintops. We need to understand that suffering is something we will encounter. Suffering is something we will experience and we prepare and ready ourselves for it. The third potential pitfall is this, equating the valleys with God's displeasure. Some of us do that. All of us are tempted to do that. The moment we find ourselves in darkness, uh, the instant we find ourselves in a valley, what's the first thing we question? God's love. Where is God? Does God still love me? Is God angry with me? Thomas Manton says, Many conceive a miss of God and draw an ill picture of him in their minds as if he were always frowning. Christian, God does not frown when he looks at you. He sees us in the Lord Jesus Christ and his love for us is unchanging. On the mountaintop, in the light, in the valley, in the oppressive darkness, his love remains what? An ever constant. And we do ourselves tremendous harm. And our faith wavers and our faith is shaken at times when in the midst of those valleys, we begin to equate that affliction, that suffering with what? Oh, God must be displeased with me. Oh, I must have fallen out of God's favor. Oh, God has changed his mind about me. God has changed his thinking of me. God has forsaken me. God has rejected me. No, friend, God is with us clearly on the mountaintops. Jesus transfigured before those three. And God is with us in the valleys. Even when Jesus is is beyond sight and beyond perception, we have this absolute certainty that it is he who is leading us through the valley. Fourth potential pitfall is this, cherishing our own ease. If you and I define life by our ease, by our comfort, by our prosperity, uh, we're in for a long, hard, difficult road. Uh, We all know that to be true. If I define my happiness 
according to earthly things. If I define my happiness according to the peace and tranquility I enjoy in terms of the circumstances of life, then I am setting myself up for despair. Fifthly, the fifth pitfall, resting in earthly comforts. Uh, We all derive great joy and delight from our family members, right? Our spouses and our children and other family members. That's good. They're great comfort. Uh, We derive great joy from fellow believers and comfort and encouragement. Excellent. Uh, We derive joy from, from so many earthly things, comfort from so many earthly things. But we must not rest in earthly comforts. Why? Let me give you one overarching reason, then break it down into three. The reality is this. Earthly comforts are weak. Now break it down into three. Earthly comforts are not affliction-proof. Earthly comforts are not death-proof. And earthly comforts are not judgment-proof. We rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our comfort, our ultimate joy, our ultimate happiness flows not from things in this life, not from earthly comforts. They do bring us a measure of comfort. Don't misunderstand. But our ultimate source of comfort is an unchanging God and his unchanging love as manifested in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's lesson number one. Accept the valleys. Lesson number two, next slide, Lauren, is embrace the promises. Brings us to verse 19. And so Jesus is there. You've got the crowds over here. You have the scribes scattered among the crowds. You have the disciples. And now you have this man explaining the situation, explaining all the confusion and the commotion, explaining why they're arguing. is because the disciples were unable to cast out this demon. And what is his response? Christ's response, verse 19. He answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Now, Mark doesn't make it clear, but it becomes a little clearer in Matthew's account and Luke's account. Do you know of whom Jesus is speaking in these verses? The disciples. O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. That phrase and this entire incident and the setting of this incident should send us back, way back, to the book of Exodus chapter 32, where Moses is up on a mountain, where the Shekinah glory descends and encompasses that mountain. After six days, God speaks to Moses from the midst of that mountain. And during his absence, what happens to the Israelites? They prove themselves faithless. The moment Moses is gone, the moment Moses is taken from view, they forget everything they have ever seen and heard. It just goes. It just evaporates. And they prove themselves faithless. Similarly, After six days, Jesus is on a mountain. The cloud descends and covers the mountain. God speaks from the midst of the mountain. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In His absence, in Christ's absence, 
the disciples prove themselves to be what? Faithless. They have forgotten. They've been with him close to two years at this point. But they have lost sight of everything they have ever heard. And they have lost sight of everything they have ever seen. And their faith wavers. Here's the question we want to ask. Here's the question we must answer. How do we avoid faithlessness in the midst of the valley when Jesus is hidden from view? I'm going to give you an answer, and then I'm going to give you five examples, and you see them already on the, on the screen behind me. But let me give you a sentence. It just consists of five simple words, and yet it is packed with significance. Here's the answer to the question, how do we avoid faithlessness in the midst of the valley when Jesus is hidden from view? Here it is, five words. Faith contents itself with promises. Faith contents itself with promises. In other words, the object of the disciples' faith in Christ's absence should have been what? His word and his promises. He had given them authority over what? The demons. He had sent them out to cast out the demons in his authority. They've lost sight of it. They have lost sight of his word. They have lost sight of his faithfulness. And so, therefore, they prove themselves faithless. Well, again, here's the question. How do we avoid faithlessness in the midst of the valley when Jesus is hidden from view? And here's the simple answer. Faith contents itself with promises. In other words, we, brothers and sisters, we live on the promises. On the promises. And what I've given you on the screen, we're just taking off here and being expansive in our thinking. What I've given you on the screen are five promises from Romans chapter 8. Now, Romans 8 is my favorite passage of Scripture. All of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, this is it. Romans chapter 8. This is a chapter I read more than any other chapter. This is a chapter I meditate and reflect on more than any other chapter. It is a chapter full of wonderful truths and promises. And here I've given us five promises in which faith must content itself in the midst of Valleys, when Jesus is hidden from view. First is this, an unalterable condition. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is an unalterable condition. The Lord Jesus Christ has taken hold of me by the Holy Spirit. And I have taken hold of the Lord Jesus by faith. And now I am one with him. And by virtue of my union with him, by virtue of this fact that I am one with him in God's sight, it means that the righteousness of Christ is mine. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And nothing, mountaintop or the darkest valley, can alter that. Here's the second promise. An unworthy comparison. We looked at this briefly in the adult Sunday school. An unworthy comparison emerging out of Romans 8, 18. Paul writes, I consider that the sufferings of the valleys of this present time 
are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You see, at the Mount of Transfiguration, we catch a glimpse of what? Of that glory that is to be revealed to us. Of that hope. Of that confident expectation that a day is coming when we will be transformed into his likeness for we shall see him as he is. We have this wonderful promise, this unchanging truth extended to us, which must be the object of our faith. Faith must content itself in this promise, in the midst of the valleys, that when I compare this valley, and I can't see the end of it, I can't see my way out of it, I don't know if I'll ever find my way out of it. I have this unwavering conviction that in the grand eternal scheme of things, it cannot even begin to compare with eternal glory. That is a promise in which faith must content itself. The third is this, an unwavering expectation. Romans 8.23, we wait, brothers and sisters, we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, For in this hope, we are saved. We have this confident expectation, this confident certainty, a coming resurrection, glorification of soul and body in the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a promise extended to us. It is a hope given to us. When God adopted us as his sons, not only did he forgive us our sins, but he imparted to us what? An eternal inheritance. It is an unwavering expectation. The fourth promise, an unshakable certainty. Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And so in the valley, I can't see six inches in front of my nose. I can't, I can't see one foot in front of the other. I don't know where this is going. I have, I'm clueless as to where this is going to end up. I don't even know if God will see fit to even bring me through the other side of that valley, back to another mountaintop experience. But what conviction, what certainty, what unshakable certainty I have is this, that I am in that valley by God's design. That God is in that valley, he is over that valley, he surrounds that valley, he is under that valley. And God, although I can't perceive it, and although I don't understand it, and although I can't explain it, and although I can't make sense of it, I rest in this truth, in this promise, that even those valleys he is using ultimately for what? My good. And it is an unshakable certainty. And the fifth promise out of Romans 8.39, an unchanging love, nor anything. That is, there is nothing in all creation, says Paul, which will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so do you understand, friends? Is it, is it, is it making sense that we go, we, we ascend the mountain, and uh, it's great, we've got a nice breeze in our sails, and we're just coasting along. Everything is great. Life is good, as we say. 
Then all of a sudden, almost unaware, catching us off guard, down we plunge into a valley. Jesus, it was so clear. Truth, which was so clear. Scripture, which was so clear. Worship, which was so wonderful. Prayer, which is so wonderful. All of a sudden, our world is shaken. All of these things are shaken. And down we go, and we find ourselves with these nine disciples. And the temptation is to what? It is to be faithless. We are faithless when? When we lose sight of the promises. Faith contents itself in the promises. The third truth that emerges from these verses. Believe the Lord. And so accept the valleys. Embrace the promises. And believe the Lord. This brings us to verse 20. The man brings his son who is demon-possessed. Verse 21, Jesus asks him, how long has this been happening to him? From childhood. And then look at what the man adds in verse 22. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. His statement, his statement's a little different. If you remember... All the way back to Mark chapter 1, there's a man who is covered with leprosy, who seeks out Jesus, finds him, prostrates himself before him, and then utters these words, If you will, you can make me clean. What does this man say in the middle of verse 22? If you can. That wasn't the leper's cry. As far as the leper was concerned, there was no doubt whatsoever. You are able. You have the power. You have the authority to heal me. Here's the question. Are you willing? That's not where this man lives. Where does this man live? He's not even sure Jesus can do it. If, if you can. Look at Christ's response. Verse 23. Jesus said to him, if you can. If you can. Who are you speaking to? All things are possible for one who believes. And Jesus heals this boy. He casts this demon out of the boy. Who's watching and who's listening? For whose benefit is this miracle? For whose benefit is this verbal exchange between this man and Jesus? If you can. If you can, it is the disciples. Why? Because what have they doubted? His ability. They have doubted the Lord. The Lord is removed from view. Yes, they had seen Jesus cast out how many demons? They themselves had been sent out to cast out demons. By their own hands, they had cast out demons. Now, the moment Jesus is gone, the moment Jesus is lost from view, they descend into this time of confusion and these arguments and doubt and despair, and they echo this man's cry, If you can. And it's confirmed later in the text. You come to verse 28. Jesus enters a house privately with the disciples. What do the disciples want to know? Why could we not cast it out? Look at his response. Verse 29, he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now hold on there. Don't confuse what he is saying. Jesus is not saying to his disciples, Well, look, boys, you only prayed five minutes. If you had prayed ten minutes, something would have happened. Well, look, only four of you prayed. If seven of you had prayed and held hands while you were doing it, something would have happened. 
Well, you prayed, but you never fasted. And maybe if you'd spent a whole night in prayer, something would have happened. That's not his point. You go to the parallel account in Matthew chapter 9, you go to Matthew chapter 16, 17. You go to the parallel account in Luke's gospel. What do we discover? That this statement is preceded by another. It is because of the littleness of your faith. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. In other words, they hadn't what? Prayed at all. And why hadn't they prayed? Because they didn't believe. And why didn't they believe? Because they were doubting. Why were they doubting? Because they were questioning. If you can. They thought they could just rhyme off some formula. They thought they could just say some words in this this state of confusion in which they found themselves. Their faith was shaken. Their faith was wavering. Faithless generation. They have lost sight of Jesus. They are questioning. They are doubting if he can. Therefore, they are not stirred. They're not motivated to pray. And Jesus rebukes them for their faithlessness. And the lesson for us in the midst of the valleys is what? We must believe the Lord. We must never lose sight of the one who calmed the sea. Never lose sight of the one who cast out legion. Never lose sight of the one who raised the paralytic. Never lose sight of the one who raised the dead. But we believe the Lord. I wonder if Lauren has put that third slide up there. Lauren, now's a good time. There you have it, God's power. God's power as displayed throughout Scripture, displayed in Mark's Gospel account, it is effortless. It involves no exertion on his part. Jesus says to the storm, be muzzled, and it goes away. God's power is effectual. It cannot be resisted or thwarted. You go back and you read all of those miracles that whenever Jesus speaks the word, what does Mark say? Immediately. Immediately he was healed. Immediately the demon left him. Immediately he got up. Immediately she was raised. Immediately, immediately, immediately. Why? Because his power is effectual. It cannot be resisted or thwarted. And God's power is excellent. It is an expression of his infinite perfection. All things are possible for one who believes. I believe I can win a gold medal in the pole vault at the next Olympics. Some of you are laughing. What's wrong? I believe it. Therefore, God will do it. I believe I can fly without the aid of an airplane. I believe this. I believe that. This is not a blank check. In the context, all things are possible for the one who believes Believes what? Believes what Jesus has said. Believes what Jesus has promised. Believes in the promises that he has extended to us. I believe God will do everything he has ever promised me he will do. I believe it. Let me ask a question. Time is slipping away. Let me ask a question by way of application, friends. I'm asking it to you. I'm asking it to me. Do you think your troubles are bigger than God? None of us are going to admit it, but deep down inside, many of us kind of lean that way. Do we really think our troubles are bigger than God? Do we really believe that Our valleys are too dark for God. His power is effortless.
His power is effectual. And his power is excellent. An expression of his infinite perfections. We believe. All things are possible for those who believe. Meaning what? All that he has commanded us to do, we can do by the power of the Holy Spirit. Persevere. Seek wisdom from him. All that he has promised, he will most surely grant for those who believe. And those who believe do what? They pray. They ask for it. The disciples didn't pray. They didn't pray why? Because they didn't believe. They didn't believe why? Jesus was hidden from view. Jesus was hidden from view. Therefore, they're wrestling with this question. Can he? Can he? No, never lose sight of his power. It is effortless, it is effectual, and it is excellent. The fourth lesson, we'll go through this quickly. Esteem the cross. Verse 30. Esteem the cross. Next slide, Lauren. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise again. Now notice verse 32. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him, Do you understand the saying? Do I understand the saying that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men? It's right out of verse 31. And they will kill him, murder him. That's Calvary's cross. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise again. And he does that for us. That is, our sin is reckoned to Jesus. He bears the weight of it, the guilt of it, and the punishment of it upon the cross. And as we believe in Jesus, his perfect life, his perfect righteousness are counted and reckoned to us. Notice the five truths as we esteem the cross in the midst of valleys. Five truths behind me. Number one, we're free from God's wrath. John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. We're received into God's favor. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. We are at peace with God. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are under God's care and providence. Matthew 6, 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? We are certain of everlasting glory. Psalm seventeen fifteen. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Five blessings of the cross, whereby we esteem it, and esteeming the cross in the midst of the valley, God strengthens us. Not only strengthens us, God carries us through the darkest, deepest, 
valleys. Now we're going to conclude with a song. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up right now because I'm just going to read a portion of this song, pray, and then they'll be up here ready to play, to play the song by the, by the Gettys. Many of us know this one, by faith, by faith. And listen to the chorus and just think of how, how it relates with all that we've heard this morning. We want to sing this and celebrate it. We will stand as children of the promise. We will fix our eyes on him, our soul's reward. Till the race is finished and the work is done, we'll walk by faith and not by sight. That's what we're going to sing. That's what we're going to celebrate. But bow with me now as we pray the Lord's blessing upon all that we've heard this morning. Our Heavenly Father, take what has been proclaimed. Take your holy word, take the scriptures, and implant it deep within. May we feed upon all that we've heard. May we take it to heart. May it be implanted deep within our souls. Uh, We confess that we are prone to wander, inclined to deviate from the way. We find it overwhelming. Many of us are overwhelmed this day by the valleys in which we find ourselves. And so we plead for your grace. We plead for your mercy. We plead for you to be, continue to be gracious with us. And we rest upon those most precious promises which we find in your word. We do ask you, as we are about to sing, that you would help us to walk by faith and not by sight. And we seek it from you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.